They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Beige Mine, aka the Terrible Aussie, and welcome to episode 22. I'll be versus the Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, By the Living Dead. This particular episode is going to be a very special one because this is going to be the first of our our major blowout for the Halloween season in October because I have a lot of exciting stuff lined up. But before I go into that, uh, I should state that the the date this episode dropped, which is on October 1st, actually marks the 55th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead, when it first premiered in cinemas in Pittsburgh on the same date back in 1968. And of course, it only makes total sense to release an episode of the show on that date to mark the occasion. But like I said before... Just to, since I'm going to basically consider October the anniversary month of Night of the Living Dead, I'm going to be going all out with the show this year. Not only will there be the traditional episodes of the show, there's also going to be bonus episodes in between, which I'm very excited about because I'm going to be talking to some of the filmmakers behind a couple of the indie Night of the Living Dead remakes and reimaginings for the show to discuss their process on making their films. So, I'm very excited to talk about all that over the next couple of weeks for the show. But before we get to the absolute amazingness that is going to be this month for the show, we got to get back to this episode, which I'm very excited about because I have not one but two returning guests who are both making their return for this show. And first up, of course, is someone who's making his return after appearing on episode 12 of the show. And that, of course, is my good friend who who I know in real life, Stephen T. Boltz. Hello, Steve. How are you? And welcome back to the show. Hey, Bede. Thank you. Thanks for having me for this one. Indeed, indeed. But I should also state, Steve, that we also, you and I have something special lined up for the podcast very soon, which we can't divulge quite just yet. <laughs> but you'll you'll all find out very soon once You're it does. You're such a tease. You're such I know. a tease. I, I may reveal what it actually is at the end of the episode, but... So yeah, like it's it, like I said, it's going to be a gangbuster month for the podcast, and I'm also happy that you're back to be a part of it by appearing on this episode. This is a very special episode for me. Uh, this is the first of the movies of the Night of the Living Dead related movies that mm-hmm. I 
uh, I think ever saw in the first place. And I got to see it in the cinema. So Ooh. this is fantastic for me. Nice. Nice. And I look forward to hearing about that. But also we're joined by another returning guest who is making his return after appearing on all the way back on episode five of the show. And that, of course, is the host of the awesome podcast, Half Price Horror. And that is John Seavey. And jo- hello, John, and welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm glad I made a decent impression. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. And uh, I-, I knew I had to ca- have you back on the show at some point because you and I have talked about upcoming episodes for the show. And then what I had, okay, what ep- episodes, John, would you be interested to appear on? You told me when you saw that this particular film was on the list, you'd immediately put your name down for it. And I'm very excited to talk about it with both of you guys because we'll definitely have a lot to say because we're going to be talking about the 1985 horror comedy, The Return of the Living Dead, which is kind of partially, not really, only in name only, (laughs) adaptation of the... 1978 novel by John A. Russo that I actually did the uh, previous episode on. So so I'm excited to talk about this film, which is considered by many as a cult classic. And I think we're going to have a lot to say on it. Definitely. This is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Um, This is, if you don't mind me jumping in, because I know you usually like to ask when you saw this for the first time, but this is the first like, proper real horror movie I ever saw. The very first horror movie I saw was The Blob, the 1958 one back as a kid, but this was the first time I saw, you know, a gory 80s nudity everything full bucket horror movie and it scarred me for life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess since we're on the conversation of when we first saw this movie for the first time, uh Steve would you like to tell us how you saw Return of the Living Dead for the first time? Yeah, I um I got to see it in the cinema. Like I said, I my um my aunt Sandy took me to see this. We had been I don't know we'd been hanging out. I was over at her place uh, for some reason. Do, we were doing something, and the ad was on TV. The ad popped up, and I was mouthing along with it. Like I knew I knew the ad. I knew all of the the beats to the. Uh, to the commercial so she was like wow okay do you want to go do you want to go see this so she took me to to see it and it was i don't know i've been watching horror movies since i was five so at this point i was well and truly versed but this was new this was new completely new i'd seen horror comedies but i hadn't seen anything sort of with this punk aesthetic or that or that did the punk aesthetic so well this really hit home for me this was great yeah well i guess um for me personally the first time I saw Return of the Living Dead, my story was interesting because when I first saw the first three films in the series, I watched them out of order. I actually watched number two and number three first before I even saw the first one. Because two and three, well, two I watched when it was on cable TV one day, so I that's how I watched it. Uh, number three on VHS, because I was starting to become a horror fan at the time, so I was pretty much just putting my hands on everything I could get in terms of horror, down at the video shop or on cable. But Return of the Living Dead, though, I didn't get around to seeing until probably the mid-2000s, mainly because every video shop I went to throughout the years did not have this movie in (laughs) stock. 
And it was only when I went to go visit my brother when he was living on the Central Coast at the time. I used to frequent a video shop that was near him. And then randomly one day, I actually finally stumbled across this movie and then watched it on my laptop. So that was basically (laughs) my first introduction to Return of the Living Dead. And I've seen it a few times since. And of course, twice in prep for this episode. So I guess um, we might as well go straight into our discussion on this film and talk about the 1985 horror comedy classic, The Return of the Living Dead. In the dark of the night, something strange is going on. And now the question is, how do we get them back into the ground? Bert, Frank, we have a little problem. Because technically, you're not alive. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. How do you kill something that's already dead? Well, how do I know, Fred? I don't know. Let me think. It's not a bad question, Bert. In that movie, they destroyed the brain to kill him. Is that what they did? The brains, right. Brains. of course, was written and directed by Dan O'Bannon from a story by John A. Russo, Rudy, Ricky, and Russell Strider, and kind of partially, in a way, not really, but only in title, only based (laughs) on the 1987 novel of the same name by John A. Russo. No, no, no. 78, sorry. That's what I meant. So, (laughs) uh, It's based on a novel that didn't even come out for two years. (laughs) Yes. Sorry about that. 1978, that's what I meant to say. (laughs) Clearly, this episode's already gone downhill, but I digress. Um, And and this film stars Clue Gulliger, James Carrad, Don Kafka, Tom Matthews, Beverly Rudolph, Miguel A. Nunez Jr., John Philippin, Jules Shepard, Brian Peck, 
Mark Venturi and Leanna Quigley, and of course, uh, Alan Trotman as the Tar Man zombie. And the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, is when two bubbling employees at a medical supply warehouse accidentally release a deadly gas into the air, the vapors cause the dead to rise again as zombies. As I said before, The Return of the Living Dead is considered an absolute cult classic for a lot of people in the horror community, and myself as well. And also, it is up there as probably one of the most famous zombie movies outside of Romero's Living Dead films. This movie has had quite the reputation since the mid-80s, and of course it has a world collective of talent behind it, including Dan O'Bannon, who, prior to the release of this film, was the co-writer behind films such as Alien, Life Force, and so many others. But the question is, though, does the movie live up to its reputation as a cult classic, or is it just a merely good film? Uh, But it's going to be more of the former than the latter. Clearly, I know what I'm doing today. Um, anyways, though, but uh, to start off with, uh, Steve, what are your initial thoughts on the film The Return of the Living Dead? It just doesn't get me, but that cast, man, that cast. We watched this um, just two nights ago, my wife and I, and it was my birthday. It was my birthday movie. So oh, a was, ha- happy belated birthday, Thank Steve. you. Thank you. That tells you in what high regard I hold this movie. I chose this from all others, including my all-time favorite, Night of the Creeps. This one, we're watching just the opening scene with uh, with James Karen taking Tom Matthews around the Unita uh, Medical Supply Company. He's just turned it up to 11 already. Like, he's everything is so cartoonish at this point, and nothing's even happened. Right. But these characters are so they're they're just outlandish to begin with. When he's describing how the canisters got lost, the two, four, five trioxin uh, story and everything. And just the way he's playing it up is so melodramatic. And you've got the great Clue Gulliger in there doing just the same, doing everything. And then they manage to turn it up even more. Once everything goes to hell, like it's fantastic. You've got um, James Karen talking about oh, typical, typical army fuck up, you know, when they lost the they lost the canisters. But then Freddie Freddie says, hey, these things don't leak, do they? And and Frank says, what? No, these are made by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Slaps the canister and it breaks down. That is just perfect comedy perfect comedy and using the rule of three he's bagged the u.s army twice already this time he he holds them up as a shining example and that's it and that's that's the movie in a nutshell and it just it like i said it just gets it just gets more so uh minutes later it's wonderful the punk kids in this we have no idea why tina is is in their friend group Like when you look at these punk kids, but particularly Suicide, who is the epitome of punk. He's fantastic, right? Scuzz, also. Spider, yes. Girls, I don't know, the the girls, but again, a cartoonish version of punk. But then you look at Tina, she's listening to Madonna when she gets home. You know, she's got the she's got the phone cord in her hair, the whole the whole thing. She is not part of this group. So um, Lourdes and I, my wife, we came up with this backstory for her. Fre- Freddie is obviously the friend in this group and she is the hanger on. 
she is the girlfriend mm. who got brought into the group. But these people are so so wonderful to begin with. They just they just bring her into the fold. And we thought that was that was really cool. That was really that was a nice little touch because there's no way Tina befriends trash at all. So you've got this weird combination of friendship groups in this. You look at the friendship between Bert and Ernie Kaltenbrunner over at the crematorium. And it's, I don't know, it's very surreal in that regard. And you test these friendships by what? Eh, throwing a bunch of corpses at them, throwing a bunch of zombies at them. It's great. <laughs> and uh, John, your initial thoughts on this film? I mean, it is it is a perfect film. It, <laughs> there is not a single thing I would change about it. It's Dan O'Bannon, who is one of the finest screenwriters ever in Hollywood. I sometimes joke he is such a good screenwriter that he continued to have a career even after people had conversations with him. Um, <laughs> famously thin-skinned man. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. He was a prickly guy, but he just wrote so well that everyone still wanted to work with him. He made great scripts. This is a great script. This is a script that's got something to say. It's not just punk in its aesthetic. It's punk in its politics, too. This mm. is about how industrial disasters happen. This is about how complacency and laziness and institutional ineptitude cause these massive, massive environmental catastrophes that people spend a decade cleaning up. And it always turns out, oh, yeah, you know, this guy didn't pay attention and bumped the barrel and we had just <laughs> left it down there to rot for all these years. And then this guy decided to clean it up by running everything through a crematorium in the middle of a thunderstorm. And it, it is that level of, of disaster, the kind of thing that was happening around them at the time. This is not long after the Bhopal incident, which was another real life situation of the release of toxic gas because some dipshit wasn't reading a dial right. It's all punk everywhere from top to bottom. I love the fact that the actors went out and really shaved their heads and really got piercings for this part. You know, everyone was kind of like, okay, you didn't need to do that. And they're like, we feel like we did. We did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, the friend group. I mean, I had friend groups like that in college where it was like a person A was friends with person B and person B was friends with person C and person C was friends with person B. And person A and D barely knew each other and didn't <laughs> like each other, but it was a real thing. That's great. And that's so punk. That's what I meant, too, about that. It's, that's so punk. The um, Yeah, the way that comes together, because it's about. If you if you share, um, you know, nonconformity, anti-authoritarianism and that sort of stuff, it, it really doesn't matter what else you disagree on with punks that that you come together on those on those issues. Yeah. The only character I have no idea how he's even there is Chuck. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah. see, I totally bought Chuck, dude. I totally bought Chuck because I saw him as David Byrne. Oh, no, Chuck <laughs> makes sense as a character. Chuck doesn't make sense as a part of that friend group. Everybody hates Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I could think of is they at least tolerate him, and that's the best he's gotten in his entire life. So he's like, they're my friends. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I will say this before I go to my thoughts on the movie. I will say that this movie has 
the most mishmash friend group probably ever in horror until I saw uh, Fags Killing uh, for the first time earlier this year. Because that's a friend group that totally did not make sense as a group. But um, but my initial thoughts on Return of the Living Dead. What can I say that you guys haven't already said already? This is a great film. And every time I do watch it, it just gets better and better. Because originally when this movie was in production, it was in the early days of of the film, it was going to be more of a direct adaptation of John A. Russo's novel from 1978. And John A. Russo also wrote a screenplay of it with another writer. And that screenplay version is also out there. So if people want to read that along with the novel, they can. And of course, like for a while, uh, Toby Hooper was attached to direct the film as well. But then of course he went off to go do Life Force instead. And so Dan O'Bannon came on just as a screenwriter to do a rewrite of the script and pretty much changed the entire story. So if people are wondering, oh, how faithful is this movie to the original book? I'm not even exaggerating what I say. The only thing that this film has in common with the book is zombies and the title. And that's about it. Yeah, it's pretty much its own story. And at the same time, though. I could definitely see why Dan O'Bannon did that, because based on everything I've seen and read, he deliberately did that so this film would be very different from the Romero zombie films. And which is a kind of interesting because the same year this film came out, Day of the Dead also was released. I think going in a very different direction in terms of the tone, the style, and also how he approaches the zombies was actually a brilliant idea. Because again, that's what makes this film so memorable so unique compared to other zombie films that were released at that point like you guys said this film definitely has a very much a punk rock vibe to it not just in terms of the the main characters in it but just the whole overall tone and how it sort of mixes horror and comedy and uh political and social commentary like it finds a good balance to mishmash all that all together to create something that is incredibly unique and also very entertaining. Like, But at the same time, though, as funny as this film can be, it can still be pretty intense and even scary at times as well. And I always keep forgetting that every time I watch the film, because when people associate Return of the Living Dead as a franchise, they see it as more full-blown horror comedy. The third film of the franchise has barely any humor in it, and that's just like a straight-up horror film. The second movie, which I do enjoy, is definitely much more of the comedic out of the first three. But this one, though, kind of is a mixture of those two tones. It does work when it's funny, but it also works when it's scary as well. So, and that's what makes it such a fun, unique film. And, balance. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think the only way we could really dis- dissect this movie is, of course, doing what I always do for this show reading out the summary of this film and dissecting it even further. So <laughs> so basically what I love about this film, it begins with a caption at the beginning of the film that says, the events portrayed in this film are all true. Real names of real people and real organizations. So it definitely kind of gives you the tone of what this film is going to be. And of course, this film is, takes place the day before July 4th. So and goes right into the next day. So this is a July 4th movie, guys. Um, <laughs> and as you guys already stated, uh, we're introduced to the medical supply f- factory. We're introduced to the characters of Frank, 
played by James Caron, Bert, played by Cool Gulliger, and Freddy, played by Tom Matthews. Bert is the boss. He's about to head off so he can enjoy the 4th of July weekend. Freddy, it's his first day on the job, and Frank shows him the ropes for the next few hours, shows him all the stuff around the factory, and then, of course, as you guys already stated, they go into the story about the chemical waste and how the events of Night of the Living Dead are actually based on true events. The maker of the film, George A. Romero, actually had to change things around so it wouldn't be the whole truth. But my only issue with this part of the film is that they talk about the event that the movie was based on happened in 1969 when the movie came out in 1968. (laughs) Pushing it even further into the alternate universe. Well, that is true. That is very true. So I, I will let it slide for that. Then, of course, <laughs> like, you gotta go with unreliable narrator. I mean, it's not like <laughs> that is, true. is the brightest bulb in the bin here. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. And I love James Caron in this movie because he really just goes for it in this film. And you could tell, well, that's the thing. Him and Tom Matthews have such great chemistry on screen and it doesn't surprise me at all that they brought both those actors back to play different characters in the sequel and because they're so good together and they're so entertaining so pretty much he he talks about the (laughs) about the chemicals in the canisters downstairs so they go down to check it out and of course like you guys already said freddie wonders are these canisters safe oh yeah uh these are built by the army they're strong as (laughs) (laughs) Frank knocks them. And of course, that's when all the gas comes out, knocks them both out. And then, of course, it spreads around the building. And of course, in one of the refrigerators upstairs, there is a dead body hung up and it starts to come alive. And then, of course, from there, that's when we're introduced to Freddy's friend group, which, of course, are the characters of Tina, Spider, Chuck, Casey, Scuzz, Trash and Suicide, all played by, once again, Beverly Rudolph, Miguel A. Nunez, John Philbin, Jules Shepard, Brian Peck, Leanna Quigley, and Mark Venturin. So they go, they decide to go pick up Freddy at his work. And around this time, though, that's when Freddy and Frank have finally woken up. They start to feel sick from the gas. And earlier before, when they were looking at the gas, they see a dead body inside one of the containers and the dead body's gone so they just assumed like once the canister leaked the body inside just melted away but not so because that their body will come back in a very spectacular way which we'll get to very soon so they go upstairs they hear the sound of a dog in the building so they go around and they find a dog but the thing is though the dog that they find is one of those sort of cut in half dogs that veterinarians use to check out the anatomy of dogs and it's it's a great little effect because like you it's on its side they think okay uh, let's turn it over and see what's wrong and then they see it and they freak out and i love the fact that pretty much frank grabs a crutch and just immediately starts hitting uh the dog and then of course they start to hear a banging at the refrigerator door and they realize oh that the dead body that's in there has now come back to life so pretty much this entire movie really starts off with a bag and while all (laughs) this is going on we're introduced to uh, a colonel character colonel glover played by jonathan terry and his wife ethel played by kathleen cordell at their mansion 
we're kind of introduced to them and their sort of relationship. But at the same time, though, we learned that Colonel Glover has been trying to find the canisters for the chemical 245 trioxin for many years. So he's been on the here out just in case if that if those chemicals just spring up once again. So it's a good way to kind of start off the film. So, uh, John, what do you think of how, I guess, 10, 15 minutes of this film kind of start off Return of the Living Dead? I mean, it, it's brilliant. Um, one of the things I, I always talk about with this movie is the way that Dan O'Bannon worked on the original Star Wars. Yeah. And yeah, he was one of the production designers. He created the graphics of the Death Star battle plans. And one of the things he took away from that is this idea of how to ground your movie in realism and how that makes all of the fantastic elements so much easier to swallow. So you have this opening two to three minutes of them just going around the warehouse, doing their regular job and dropping bits of real medical trivia that Dan O'Bannon had picked up over the years. And so by the time you get to that line, you ever see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? You are fully invested in the idea that this is a real thing that's really happening, not just because of the caption at the beginning, which is kind of a weird joke of Dan O'Bannon's that you won't get until you watch it a second time, but because the characters and the details and the production design and everything just combines to make it so real. There's posters on the walls. There's pinups by the Coke machine. There's all these little tiny details that make you feel like you're just watching a real place and real people. And so when it goes fantastic and it goes into the zombies, you're just sucked right along in with it. And there's never a point where you find yourself surprised that weird things are happening. It is it is such a triumph of every level of the movie on that score. Oh, definitely. And especially with knowing, with Dan O'Bannon having previously written Alien, it's kind of very similar how the first act of that film kind of just shows the normality of the characters. Like, these aren't just, you know, like, for example, in Alien, all of our major characters are essentially, and this is something that has been brought up many times, as truckers in space. So they just act accordingly in that regard. And that's what makes them such interesting, unique characters compared to other characters we've seen in other sci-fi films, but also the attention to detail around them in the set design that makes it far more believable and more lived in. That is kind of replicated again here in this first act with the performances and also the layout, because I, I was, when I rewatched this film, particularly the second time when I was taking notes on it, I was like really looking at like the layout of the, the supply factory just to see like all the posters and all the little things that are hung up. And it really kind of adds the believability of that. Especially there's one little um, side, and I and I noticed this probably the first time ever when I rewatched this film, is it looks like an eye chart, but it clearly says <laughs> something about Bert when you actually read it down. Like, I don't have it at what it actually says down here, but I just thought that was such a really clever and just sort of fun way to kind of really make this such a believable world. And like you said, once, you know, shit hits the fan and the fantastical elements start to come in, it just feels like like a logical step for the story to go in. And we feel more of the tension for the characters within the story. But uh, Steve, your thoughts on the first 15 minutes of this film? Yeah, I mean, you guys said it. It's a great setup. It's a great setup. It it makes, and I've, I've said this myself, 
in my in my writing classes and everything. You you establish a a real world. You accept when things go awry because they're part of that that real world. And apart from like I said, both of these guys just turning everything up to um, up to eleven. Apart from um, almost every actor in this uh, movie turning everything up to eleven after a while, it does feel very, very realistic and very, very grounded, uh, lived in the lived in universe. When you you mentioned that, be that that was George Lucas's big thing on Star Wars. You yep. know, we wanted everything to look lived in and used and not sparkly and like it just came off the assembly line. And that's part of that's part of reality. So when you when you meet these guys and it's just the most mundane thing in the world to be working at this this medical warehouse, um, it really does set the tone. And the fact that I always think the fact that it's sort of meta has helped Mm. to you know bringing up oh you know that movie night of the living dead well everybody knows night of the living dead so we're the fact that these characters know that movie and that this isn't a sequel but we're set in a world where that movie exists that helps as well what's the weirdest thing you've ever saw in here kid i have seen weird things come and i have seen weird things go Weirdest thing I ever saw. Just had to cap it off. Oh, yeah? <laughs> What's that? Let me ask you a question, kid. Did you see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one where the corpses start eating the people, right? Sure. What, what about it? Did you know that movie was based on a true case? <laughs> Come on, you're shitting me, right? I ain't never been more serious in my life. That's not possible. I mean, they showed zombies taking over the world. Well, they changed it all around. What really happened was, back in 1969 in Pittsburgh at the VA hospital, there was a chemical spill, and all that stuff kind of leaked down into the morgue, and it made all the dead bodies kind of jump around as though it was alive. What chemical? 2,4,5-trioxin, it's called. It was to kind of spray on marijuana or something. And the Darrow Chemical Company was trying to develop it for the Army. And they told the guy who made the movie that if he told the true story, they'd just sue his ass off. So he changed all the facts around. So what really happened? Well, they closed it all down, see? And the Army shipped all that contaminated dirt and all those dead bodies out. So how come you know about it? <laughs> well, typical army fuck-up. The transportation department got the orders crossed. And they shipped those bodies here. Instead of the Darrow Chemical So you get, you know, your first, um, you went up to introducing, introducing Bert, introducing uh, Colonel Glover. Colonel Glover and his wife. I just find... As we were watching it, like I said, we get to the the end of the movie where they cut back to to Colonel Glover and his and his wife and and um, Lourdes goes, oh, I forgot he was in this. I'm like, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You don't <laughs> want to worry about him. He he doesn't he doesn't make an impression. Like you're not sitting there the rest of the movie wondering what uh, what's going on with the colonel. You know what's going on with the colonel. He's gone to work. He's come home. He checked the equipment, and that's it. He had a little, you know, tense moment with his wife, 
this is his ordinary world, right? So he's not expecting anything different to happen. Nothing is happening for him. It's all over here in um, in Kentucky. You know, is it? I'm sorry. Is it Kentucky? Uh, yeah, it's Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So. You know, we don't need to cut back to him. We don't need to learn anything about him. He's just there to give us some information, and that's it. And you you totally forget about him. So he's he's actually riding the line of being being an important character, perfectly developed, yet having no impact on the story until we until we need him again at the end, when he you know pops up to destroy everybody. But you'll we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, and I don't know, I can't say enough about the punk kids, so I just won't say anything anything more. <laughs> <Once> we... <laughs> well, don't... Yeah, we'll get to that very shortly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um so basically what's the oh, uh by the uh... way the uh, the poster says Bert is a slave driver and also he's losing all his hair. Ha ha. Oh, okay. That, well, no, that... no, 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 no. It says sorry, Bert is a slave driver and a cheap son of a bitch who has you and me here. Sorry to, to, to step on you oh, there, no, John. You're, you're, right. you're right. I forgot about the cheap son of a the, bitch. The cheap son of a bitch <laughs> who, well, ha, who has you and me. Yeah. Yeah. And it says yeah. a lot about Bert that he's got that hanging in his office. Like he is one of the guys. He's mm-hmm. the boss you always want to have who has a good sense of humor. And, you know, he is really a cool dude. He has yeah. a picnic for the 4th of July for his employees you know, he's he's slapping people on the back and telling jokes. He seems yeah. like a pretty decent person. <laughs> oh, definitely. Until shit hits the fan. But um, <laughs> so basically... then he throws them into then he just throws them uh, under the bus. I would get to that in a second. Yeah. But I, I've always loved that. Always loved that scene. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, so basically once. So Frank decides to give Bert a call. So he comes back down. Frank and Freddie tell him the situation of what happened and that there is a body in the in the fridge that is is alive. They sort of talk about what they're going to do, and of course they bring up Night of the Living Dead again, and they remember, oh, the killer zombie, you you destroy the brain. So they decide to open up the fridge, and the zombie comes out full-blown yellow, and I'm thinking to myself, is that that yellow bastard from Sin City? Because um, <laughs> he's like full-blown <laughs> yellow. And nude, by the way. And so he attacks Bert, but they manage to hold him down. So Bert grabs a p- giant pickaxe, hits him in the head. But this is where the subversive, the subversive nature of this film comes in. The zombie doesn't die. So they decide to basically cut off the zombie's head. That doesn't work. The zombie's body still gets up and moves around. So they hold it down. And another thing, great thing about this film is, of course, the dialogue. And they talk, and I'm paraphrasing, but you guys probably know this, these lines more than me. <laughs> Essentially, like, oh, you said that we're supposed, to, we're supposed to get him killed in the head. Well, that's how it worked in the movies. And, of course, Freddie says one of my favorite lines in the movie. Uh, you mean the movies lied? <laughs> <laughs> and then... Not a bad question, Bert. Exactly, exactly. So... <laughs> But that's the great thing about this film, and this was a deliberate thing by Dan O'Bannon to make his zombies different from from the Romero zombies, is the zombies in this film, they can't die unless you fully incinerate them down to ashes. They can talk, and they can run in this version as well. And that's what makes this film, or at least the zombies in this one, such 
unique creations because he because it adds more tension to the story and also makes them stand out. And also, as we have seen in pop culture since this movie comes out, the whole idea of the zombies don't they don't want to eat anything else of the body except the brains. And they yell out brains, brains, brains. And we would see that a lot in pop culture because everyone associates zombies with eating brains. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, that's where this started, the brains, brains, brains. But also um, everybody wants to blame 28 Days Later for fast zombies or Mm. or sometimes it's um, the Dawn of the Dead remake, the fast zombies. But I, I, I believe this is the first time we saw fast zombies, too, isn't it? Uh, sort of. We kind of got to see fast zombies in the Italian horror film Nightmare City. But then again, that's kind of questionable whether those ones in that film were full zombies or mm-hmm. not. So I yeah. guess it's Well, that's really... the 28 Days Later argument, too. That's not, yeah. They're not zombies. That's the crazies. Yeah. But uh, I guess they could be debatable whether Nightmare City was technically f- the first running zombie film. But I would say that and also this are definitely the first precursors to the running zombie movement and like i said it kind of works it works for the story here so they decide to we'll take we'll cut the body up into pieces and take it to the mortuary next door that's run by ernie and i love the fact that (laughs) the two characters in the film are named bert and ernie i know (laughs) (laughs) and as this is going on freddie's friends rock up but they realize that Freddy's not due to get off work for another few hours, so they decide to go hang out in a cemetery called Resurrection Cemetery, which I love the name for because, mm-hmm. like, if you needed an alternative title for this movie, Resurrection Cemetery would have been a good choice for it. So they basically hang out there and party. And I got to say, though, this is probably, before we get to the most memorable part of this section, I love Leanna Quigley in this movie, even though she her role is small, she le- she steals every scene she's in, and I particularly like when they get rock up to the medical center, they see the side, and everyone's like, oh, why is it called that and everything? And she's like, I like it. It's a statement. <laughs> <laughs> and it pretty much tells you at first what the character of Trash is. And then, of course, uh, she's having a conversation with Spider about... <laughs> about death and what's the worst way to die and she talks about being clawed and been manhandled by men so it's in a way it's foreshadows her death later on in the film but of course definitely one of the other more interesting aspects of this film is one of the songs blurring up uh trash decides to take off all her clothes and start dancing in the cemetery and this is full frontal nudity from Leanna Quigley. And I love how all this is happening. One of the characters off screen is like, oh, look, guys, Trash is taking her clothes off again. Again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's worth yeah, mentioning the thing. Song, the song is a straight banger. Like, oh, yeah. This movie's soundtrack is all killer, no filler. Mm. Yes. Uh, the song Tonight, and I forgot who performed it, but it is the song called Tonight. And it plays a couple of times SSQ, throughout this film. Yeah. SSQ, yes. Like you guys, like you say, John, the soundtrack to this is also another big thing about this film that I think what makes it such a memorable film is that the soundtrack from beginning to end, and even the score, especially when the opening credits are happening, is just killer. Like every song is great, the score itself is great. And so as the guys are partying, they sort of notice Bert, Frank, and Freddie going into the mortuary, but it's from a distance, so they don't really sort of think it's them at first. 
And so we're introduced to Ernie, played by Don Kalfa, who I think who's also great in this film as well. So Bert talks to him about, oh yeah, we need a bit of a favor. Is it all right if we go use your incinerator to burn these bags? And I, I like the fact that Ernie is not an idiot. He keeps asking questions like, so what's in the bags? And I love that um but the squ- tells him like it's uh rabbit squirrels. Rabbit <laughs> Oh sorry, no uh, rabbit his, weasel, sorry. His rabbit delivery weasel. on that his delivery on that is so wonderful because there's a pause even before he answers. He says, what's in the bags? And it, there's a pause and he goes, rabid weasels. Like he, he's piecing it together. He's just coming up with this on the fly. He'd planned this whole thing out except for actually telling him what's in the bag. It, it's, it's just such a, a, it's a great actor moment. It's a great actor moment, that half second, that half second he takes to reply. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, again, it adds more of the humor to the film. And, of course, Ernie doesn't really buy this at all, that it's uh, rabid weasels. And you can't blame <laughs> it. Store. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, but that's a great line, too. <laughs> and I also love the fact that it's like, you know, this is terrible. This is, like, take it to, a like, uh, a vet or something like that. And like, this is this is animal cruelty. That's what he's saying to him. And then you see Bert and all that trying to come up with other excuses, but... In the end, they basically were like, you know what, we might as well show him. So they drop out one of the bags. The severed arm of the yellow zombie grabs Ernie, and and it's like, yep, we'll go and put this in the incinerator. But as all this is happening, Frank and Freddy start to get more and more sicker. And I love the subtlety of the makeup as they start becoming more zombie-ish as the film goes on. So they go to the incinerator, they burn the entire body to ashes, they think it's all over. However, though, the smoke from the zombie rises up into the air, and that's when a storm happens. And it basically turns the rain into a kind of acid rain, and it just rains over everything. So the gang go back to the car to get shelter. But while all this is going on, uh, Tina decides to, like, before all this goes on, Tina decides to go check up on Freddy. She goes inside, can't find him anywhere, so she goes downstairs, finds the empty container, and that is when we are introduced to Outside of the Cemetery Zombie from the original Night of the Living Dead, probably the second most famous zombie in cinema history, the Tar Man, and it is such a a startling introduction to the character and also the design of it is every time I see this film, I am transfixed by the design of the zombie because as we saw, it was in the container earlier in the film and it's melted away. So it is just basically just like this creation that is just slowly turning in the goop throughout the entire film. And of course uh, the actor who plays Tarman, Alan Tupman does such a great physical performance because he's like going like that. And of course, he as soon as he sees Tina, he yells out brains, tries to attack her. She hide she hides in a cupboard. And then the gang decide, you know what? Water sleeping through the car. Let's just go over to the factory. They go there, they hear Tina scream, they go downstairs. And that's when the Tar Man attacks and kills Suicide, eats his brains, and he sees the others, and which is and says another great quote in this movie: "Just more brains." <laughs> and so they go back upstairs, 
This, I love the how yeah, pretty much the film is basically escalated at this point. And another interesting thing, too, about the zombies in this film, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but you don't technically turn into a zombie if you get bitten in this film. because Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Because it's actually the chemicals that do it. Because later in the film, well, we'll get to one certain character's death where I thought, oh, well, she gets attacked, so she must turn into a zombie. But then I remember other things like about the chemicals being around where she was, but we'll get to that shortly. Up to this point in the story, Steve, what are you thinking of this film so far in terms of now that it's escalating in terms of its plot? Well, like I said, man, once it once it uh, escalates, it just shoots it just shoots for the moon. <laughs> there's no there's no stopping. Um, when you've got uh, I want I want to talk about Ernie. I want to talk about yes. Ernie and and just that that moment where they when they bring the uh, the 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 cut up uh, corpse in and and they give him the whole rabid weasel story and everything for a guy named after a Nazi yes he is the most he is the most humane reasonable character in this in this story he's he's going oh god you can't just and watching watching Don Kalfa who is so underrated uh, uh, for a lot of reasons his reactions to this it's not just when he's doing something when he's delivering a line but he and he and james karen have some of the best reactions to things in this movie watching him when when bert met just mentions the crematorium his his face just tells the whole story he's like oh god no that's that's cruel right and his voice goes up like that he is fantastic he is he is um i don't know because it's an ensemble piece i don't know that there's necessarily a hero mm. in this going by the way the journey works you either meet the villain or the hero first and we don't meet ernie until tw- like 20 minutes into the thing at least so he's not technically your hero but he is he is the guy who's hitting the most of the hero beats mm. after this and i think he's i think he's great i wish i wish he was actually in the action you know, he he doesn't he doesn't get to do anything. He's the guy they come to. He's basically the I don't know if he's the mentor. Maybe um, he might he might fit into that category, but he never he, he never gets outside of the he never gets outside of the mortuary. You know, he's just always always inside there. Never gets to interact apart from Freddie. Yeah, and the half lady. Now there's the, there's the zombies outside trying to get in trying to get in through the windows and everything. He doesn't really react, um, to get to interact with with any of the zombies. But he's like the, I don't know, he's like the wise man as well. He's a, a, a mix of both the, the hero and the mentor archetypes. I think he's fantastic. But just getting back to your initial question, sorry, <laughs> about the, the movie in, in general. Yeah, man, it just, it switches gears at this point. Once the, once the dead arise, I mean, that's your midpoint. Once the dead arise, it's like, OK, point of no return here. We can't you can't put the uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle at this point. And I don't know. It's like O'Bannon just pulled the ripcord here and said, this is it. <laughs> we're going to mm. we're going to dump, you know, we're going to dump them all on you when they eventually we'll get to this in a bit. But when they eventually do manage to get outside our heroes manage to get outside the cemetery, there's more zombies elsewhere. There's more zombies coming in. Because of this, I don't know, misguided thought to burn this zombie and we'll just send send all the smoke up into the atmosphere. 
like you said, and 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 rain it down. They never once put together that this was what happened, that this was the reason. You get um, Bert saying, oh, I don't know. Now there's hundreds of them. Where are they all coming from? Blah, blah, blah. And even at the end, the same thing happens. You know, they're, oh, well, you know, there does appear to be some burning skin, but that's not a problem. And you know it's just going to start all over again. And all of these things up to this section of the movie, O'Bannon's just laying the breadcrumbs for this. He's he's leaving the signs of where this is going and what's going to happen. And I think it's just masterful storytelling from him. It's it's just great. Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, John, your thoughts? Well, to me, I mean, you, you mentioned how not having the zombies be killable is it, it adds tension to the story. But I think you really need to spotlight that because that's something you don't see in horror very often. You know, the horror movie is always an exercise of how do we find the monster's weakness so we can destroy it? How do we find the slasher's weak point so that we can put him down once and for all? You know, even if it doesn't work from movie to movie, the end is always the hero triumphing over the monster. And here, Annabelle is like, no, that's that's not going to happen. There's too many of them and they're too hard to kill and you're all just fucked. <laughs> and even in the sequels they they abandon that because it's just yeah. too bleak but O'Bannon is there for it and I, I love all the little touches the, one of the things that I always point out to people that always blows their mind when they let the cadaver out of the fridge in the morgue so that they can put the pickaxe through its head the cadaver runs right past Freddie and Frank completely ignores them doesn't care about them and it's because they're dead. They are already dead and they just don't know it yet. And it's just all those little touches of storytelling, all the great sequences. And yes, we all remember Linnea Quigley. Uh, I was when when this came out on DVD the first time I bought it and I watched it over again because it was the first time I'd seen it since I was 10 years old. And I mentioned to my friend, you know, who's watching it with me, boy, this really holds up like when I was 10. And he looked at the screen and said, 10? And I said, <laughs> yeah, we, we weren't very well supervised. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, everything, there, there's no doldrums in this movie. There's no point where they allow you to regroup. It's just constantly accelerating. And that is something that's so hard for a movie to do. Like even the original Night of the Living Dead, which starts with a bang, there's that long section in the middle where they're fortifying the house and everything kind of calms down and it takes on a little bit of a, you know, contemplative aspect. And O'Bannon's like, no, we're just going to gun it. We're gunning it the whole way. I love it. I'm glad you mentioned that, John, because um, when they when Frank and Freddie, um, Frank goes, oh, the body must have melted, you know, at, when they wake up from from having been knocked out by the gas and they look in the tank and Tarman is. They assume that the, the corpse melted away, um, but Tarman's down there. He's hanging around. He's been hanging around there the whole time that they've been lying there and hasn't touched them because he, they're, he's one of them at this point. They're one of him, I guess is the better way to say that. And yeah, that's that. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I've never heard that conversation before either. Yeah, well, and this also, is the first time. Oh, sorry. I was going to say like um... – it's the same for me as well. Like I, I, you know, it's funny. Only when I rewatched it the other day, I was thinking like, 
They were knocked out the entire time Tarman was down there. Why didn't Tarman it? But now, with knowing that explanation, it makes so much sense. And I'm surprised it's taken me this long to realize that. So I I appreciate that, John. <laughs> yeah, I've had that. I've had that for years and years. John, bless you. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and also, just a big shout out to Alan Troutman because he he does not move like a human being. No. When mm. I watch that. I, and the first couple of times I'm like, how are they doing that? Is that a puppet? Is that a, an animatronic? Is he stop motion? And none of it made sense because I know what all those things look like. And it's like, no, it's just the way he moves his body is so inhuman that it genuinely does not look like a living person. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes that character so memorable is, again, not just the design but just the physical performance of the character as well. Uh, so from here, uh, <laughs> so basically uh, Frank and Freddy start to get more and more sick, but Ernie decides to call an ambulance and the ambulance comes around. Like the characters, the paramedics don't have names, but I love when I was watching the documentary, the actors who played the paramedics, they decided to give their characters the names of Tom and Jerry. Since there was a Bert and Ernie in this film, why not call them Tom and Jerry? So, <laughs> and I love this little scene because as they're sort of examining Frank and Freddy, they just realize, uh, I don't know how this is possible, guys. Uh, you guys are technically dead. You're alive, but dead. Um, <laughs> Except they and don't I love saying you're dead. They say, yeah. you don't have vital signs. I love that yeah. they're that yeah. professional about it. They're like, yeah. Yeah. okay, something funny's going on here because you don't have vital signs. Mm. But that's got to be wrong because you're walking and talking. So we're going to get you to the hospital and figure it out. I like the, that's such a realistic touch that they don't do a big melodramatic, you're dead. But, yeah. Oh, but, and again, going back to the the setting the scene, setting the realism, you know, it's great. And I also love the fact as this is all going, as all this is going on, they keep asking Bert, like, what happened and everything. And Bert, and I kind of really took notice of Clue Gulliger's performance in this one, because when I first watched this film years ago, I thought, okay, Bert is kind of, kind of the hero character, the straight man of the story. In, but watching his performance and, and looking at it in prep for the show, I really... There is a lot of thing, very sus things about the character because he really doesn't want his factory to have any bad reputation as, at all. And so basically he's trying to come up with many excuses as he possibly can, you know, so he and the company don't get into trouble. And I think that's such a great detail about that oh. character because it really kind of says a lot about him. As he's well. a shifty fucker. He's a shifty yeah. fucker because, like, you, you know, in the beginning you said he's one of the guys – He's one, you know, and that's a perfect character setup for somebody who eventually is going to, you know, leave everybody behind. If you show him as this this guy who cares for his employees, his character arc would be that he does not. And that's one of the seeds you're planting there with or that O'Bannon is planting there with him going, yeah, I, I, we don't know what kind of poison we can find out, but not until the morning. I'm sorry. So he's trying to cover his ass. But then. O'Bannon geniusly says, yeah, no, we're not actually going to go that route. He is going to help these kids, you know, and he is going to play play the hero, the hero card, even though he dooms them all to annihilation un unknowingly. Yeah, he always I'll seems to me like a guy who's just doing his best under some very trying circumstances. Mm -hmm. And he 
I mean, judging by his age range, he probably would have served in one war or another, World War II mm. or Korea or Vietnam. And he probably knows that you do not win medals for whistleblowing on the military. And he's just like, I, I don't want to get anybody from the government involved in my shit because I know that shit will roll downhill and they'll need a scapegoat for this. And it's going to be me. There's oh, he no knew that. that, that and that's exactly, you're exactly right. That's why he never called them in in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, as all this is going on, uh, the gang decide to head to the mortuary. So they run through the cemeteries. It's still raining. And as all this is happening, now that the chemicals from the rain have soaked into the ground, that's when all the dead bodies start to come back to life. And we're introduced to one in particular, which is just basically a skeleton. And I love the sort of how this happened. As soon as the skeleton rises up and its mouth opens, that's when the, the song kicks in. I know for a fact, based on the documentary, a lot of people weren't happy with that effect in the film, but I really like that because it really just worked for me for some reason. And I would have loved to see more skeletal <laughs> zombies in this movie. Stupid. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So the gang make a run for it. They try to outrun the zombies. Trash falls down and she just gets swamped by the zombies in this puddle. But I also love that... Um, Leanna Quigley's performance because in the first half she's like this kind of tough very sort of dour kind of punk girl who talks about death and all that but as the after when the rain hits and then since she's completely naked and the rain burns her skin she comes she goes completely normal like she's that facade that she has put on in the first half of this movie is gone yeah. And then once the zombies attack her, that's when we kind of really see that character who for who she is as someone who is terrified. And it's kind of, a, yeah, kind of what she was saying earlier, like what her happening to her right now was foreshadowed earlier. So the gang get to the mortuary. The zombies try to get in, but they manage to board up a lot of the areas. The paramedics decide to go get some equipment out of the ambulance. And then that's when they get swamped by the and killed by the zombies and i love that when there's a great shot in the film and it's also a very creepy one when one of the paramedics gets into the driver's seat turns on the light and all the zombies are right there standing in, there yeah just standing there it's such a great creepy shot yeah so the zombies uh go to town on their brains and as a radio is going on one of the next memorable quotes from this movie is one zombie goes up to the radio basically just says Send more paramedics. <laughs> yeah, and then that's when um the characters decide to figure out what to do. And as this is happening, Frank and Freddy just get more and more sick. Uh, but also, uh, the characters of uh, Chuck and Casey, they're not with the group. They ran off back to the factory, being chased by the zombies. So they hold up there while the others hang out at the mortuary. So everyone is trying to figure out what to do next. And as all this is happening, more paramedics come, still get eaten and killed by the zombies. So at one point, they decide to board up a window and the character of Scuzz gets attacked and bitten by the half-lady zombie, which is a great puppet design, by the way. Mm -hmm. So they grab the half-lady zombie and take it back to the medical room to examine it. And that's when they learn more about the zombies. And again, the puppetry on this creature is fantastic. And it's voiced by Cherry Davis. So the voice work here is 
phenomenal. But I also love, again, the little details of the design of the creature, particularly with the spinal cord moving back and forth. And as for well. some reason, the spinal fluid mm. that's leaking out of her after all this time is fantastic. Oh, yeah, definitely. And she and they ask, like, and so Ernie asks it some questions, and we find out that the zombies don't want to eat bodies. They want to eat brains because they find out when you die, you're in constant pain all the time. And the only thing that can relieve it is eating brains. Well, I don't understand what you want with it, Ernie. I mean, what are we doing with it? I want to examine it. I mean, you make sure it's tied right. It's big time, right? I mean, I mean, it's not going to get it loose, right? No, it's not going to get loose. You're no stronger than humans. Don't be afraid. I'm busting in the damn head. Man, you sure that thing's tied good? You can hear me. Yes. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. Brains only. Yes. Why? The pain. What about the pain? The pain of being dead. It hurts to be dead. I can feel myself rot. Eating brains. How does that make you feel? It makes the pain go away. Again, it's such a unique, interesting thing is that these zombies, and this is something they brought up in the documentary More Brains, is like, in a way, these zombies are almost like drug addicts. And they need brains to relieve themselves from the constant pain that they're feeling all the time. And also, in an interesting way, re-watching this film, because a couple... Last year, I I watched for the first time the original 70s film version of Tales from the Crypt. And there was a story in that where uh, a monkey's paw type of story where a woman's husband's died and she wants her husband to come back to life. And he does. But since he is a dead body and has completely been embalmed, he is just screaming in pain and he can never die. But he's going to be screaming forever so that kind of reminded hearing like the explanation why the zombies need brains because they're in pain kind of just reminded me of that because again it could just be the embalming fluid there's you know, and stuff like that so it's an interesting thing about how dan o'bannon how he crafted these zombies to make them unique and to make them scary and the fact that like you said earlier john that these zombies can't die makes the story even bleaker and we fear more for our main characters because they're based they're pretty much in a no-win situation as this is happening they decide to uh make a break for it basically spider and bert decide to go get the car and they'll come back and get uh tina and ernie but as they go outside the zombies basically swarm over them that to the point where they have to get out of there. They can't stay because they can't help them now. So they drive off. Tina freaks out. But I love the fact that Ernie is like, they have to go. Like, mm. he understood, like, that, that was like a, they weren't able to overcome that or they'd be dead soon. Also, I forgot to mention this earlier because this is a scene that happened a little bit earlier. Now that Frank and Freddy are slowly turning into zombies, 
they isolate them in the chapel. Tina was in there with them as well. And then Freddy completely turns. He becomes a zombie, tries to attack Tina, but the others come in, save her, and throw acid in his face and burn his eyes. And I love the makeup work that they do on Tom Matthews here because that's such a great look for Mm. the blind zombie look. So uh, once that's done, uh, so they hide out in the medical room. They lock the door so Freddy can't come in. Bert and Spider go back to the factory. That's where they meet up with Chuck and Casey. And all this is going on. Trash now officially becomes a zombie. And since she was in the puddle, her body obviously would have been consumed the chemicals and turned into a zombie. And she goes all white and she attacks and kills a homeless person. And I love the fact that if you look very closely, they do an interesting makeup job is that her mouth gets really big Mm -hmm. as she attacks people. And again, it's such an interesting design for the zombie form of that character. So, uh, John, up to this point in the story, because we're up to the basically the start of the third act of the film. What are you thinking of where this film is going so far with the story? Even though I have jumbled up exactly where, the, <laughs> like the plot mechanics of the story so far. Well, I love that Trash embodies the punk aesthetic. She lives fast. She dies young. She leaves a beautiful corpse. I love I love the music in this section of the film when we when we get surfing dead by the cramps, which fun trivia, the cramps music is in this. The cramps themselves are in Day of the Dead playing zombie extras. So there, there's a nice little symmetry between the two zombie films that came out almost at the same time. Nice. Um, really, the thing that always stands out for me on this viewing or on this section of the movie, rather, is just watching Frank and Freddy go through it as they're undergoing rigor mortis and their blood is pooling. And it's just, it is so horrific to imagine what they are going through and to know that the only way to stop this even temporarily is to have to crack someone's skull open and eat their brains out of their heads. It's just, being a zombie is another part of the existential terror of this movie. It's almost worse than being attacked by the zombies. At least Scuzz is just dead and it's over with quickly. Frank and Freddy are going to be dealing with this forever. Well, they're not, but they could be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, Steven? I don't, I don't know that I can add anything, man. I don't know that I can add anything. I just... I go back to James Karen at this point. Every, everything, everything is just nonstop chaos. James Karen, this is the scene just before they take Frank and Freddy to the chapel, the Wee Chapel of the Dawn. This is the scene where they decide to take them. Guys, pop in your, your Blu-ray, your DVD, whatever. God bless you if you have a VHS of this. But watch that scene again and pay strict attention to James Karen and what he is doing with his body he's he's in the scene but he's not part of the scene he's just quivering and shaking and and just being a guy who's dead but not dead at this point Mm. he is fantastic he is fantastic you got them they they take them into the chapel and you see the moment where freddie turns which is interesting because as we've said he's been dead quote unquote dead his second scene in the movie particularly. And there is a moment where he transitions to being in pain 
to weirdly not being in pain. Uh, if we want to follow that up, if you guys want to pick up on that thread, he he transitions and he says, Tina, I've just realized there's one thing that can stop this pain, your brain. And that's when he attacks her. And you see that moment of peace that comes over him. But I don't mm. know what that transition is necessarily because it hurts to be dead. He's been dying this whole time. If we, you know, want to use. I don't even know what kind of definitions we could use when we're talking about this. But he's been like the whole time showing no vital signs, no nothing, going into rigor mortis. And then that moment, that moment of peace for him, he transitions into one of the living dead. Frank never gets there. Frank yeah. is always in pain. And the the scene where they're burning the body or the parts of the body and the split dogs and all of that, for which... Bert will owe Ernie a huge favor, right? And they never get into what that is or what that's going to be. He just owes him a huge favor. Frank just snidely says to Freddie, some favor. I could operate that thing, right? Mm. Now he gets in and he 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 runs down to the, the crematorium, crawls in and burns himself. That was all James Karen. He yeah. brought that to O'Bannon. And I just think that's that's fantastic. He never actually gets to the point where he becomes one of these things because he takes himself out of the game. And it's so tragic. And we talked we mentioned about the we mentioned the soundtrack. And there's a whole uh, there's a whole business about which release has the original soundtrack. So far, I only know of the second sight Blu-ray release that has yep. the completely unaltered soundtrack uh we watched the scream factory the other night with the they say slightly unaltered which i love the phrasing in that (laughs) (laughs) we watched the slightly unaltered soundtrack which only removes the um the song by the damned yeah um and dead can dance so without rocky erickson's burn the flames playing over that scene I don't know that it has the same impact without party time. Can you imagine any of these any of these scenes playing with any other music going on? No, John, you <laughs> jump in. Come on, man. One thing I will say is, you know, you said it was a sense of peace, but I always got it as more of a sense of purpose. And mm. it happens to both of them. They both develop this sense of I see the way out now. And for Frank, the way out is I am burning myself. I am taking myself out. I can't deal with this. I know what I have to do, and I'm going to to permanently remove myself. For Freddie, it is I know what I have to do, and it is become a brain eater. Eat your brain. And they yeah. both find that. Okay, that's interesting. I just I've never seen um, Frank's transition, so I'd never I'd never seen it that way. I always sort sort of saw Frank as still holding on to that you know, little thread of of whatever it is that makes him human. So that's cool, man. That's a, that's a cool way of looking at that, the sense of mm. purpose. Yeah, I Definitely. think it's when he wa- walks out of the chapel. You know, everyone is so busy with Freddy, and he's just, like, making a beeline for the crematorium. <laughs> he knows what he has to do, and he's doing it. <laughs> so good. Exactly. exactly. And I do love that scene as well, and the fact that, as you said, it stated before, Steve, that James Caron actually came up with that idea and brought it to Dan O'Bannon, and they wrote, rewrote the script so that Frank would have that death is actually it makes that seem very effective especially just about as he's about to go into uh the incinerator he takes off his wedding band and kisses it before he goes in which is another little touch because 
We hear his phone conversation with his wife earlier in the film, say, oh, he's going to be home late, keep the, the keep roast, roast. Yeah. roast going. <laughs> and even in that short little scene, we can see, like, oh, he clearly loves his wife because there's a very – he speaks to her very lovingly in that scene. So when he does kiss that wedding band, you do feel so sorry for yeah. him in that moment. So from here, in terms of the story, but – and Spider get back to the factory. They get descended by zombies. They manage to get inside since um, Chuck and Casey are already in there. The car unfortunately blows up. Uh, more police come, and they too get descended <laughs> by the zombies. And so the police have to put a barricade around the areas so they don't get attacked. But even then, though, that doesn't really help. So basically, what Bert and the kids decide to do is... The phone upstairs isn't working. There is a phone downstairs, but the kids tell him that the tar man zombie is down there. So they hatch a plan. They open up the door. Bert gets a baseball bat, knocks the tar man's head clean off, and they go down to the basement. They find the phone. They call the police. They manage to talk to the police chief who's at the barricade. But soon that phone call just doesn't end up working well because the zombies descend upon the police, take them all out. And there's a creepy little moment like where Bert is hearing all the screams and all that through the phone. And spiders are, I think it's either spider or Casey who's asking, Oh, what's going on? And all Bert does is just pull the phone away from his ear and directs the phone toward them. And they can hear all the screams and everything come out from the phone and i just thought that was such a great little creepy moment and very effective so bert decides you know what we might as well call the army so he sees a number on the side of the container he calls gets in touch with someone in the government and of course the government gets in contact with colonel glover but before we get to that scene we go back to the mortuary freddie is knocking down the door to the medical room uh there is a little attic up in the roof so Ernie and Tina decide to go up there and they board it up the best they can. But Freddie manages to break in. He tells Tina that he can smell her up there. He's going to get her. Tina is freaking out. Freddie is trying to bang the door in. Tina is crying and upset. Ernie's there holding her to give her comfort. But at the same time, though, and this was another little thing I, from based on the documentary that was added in by Don Kaffer, is that at one point, since he's holding the ha- a handgun, he think he put, draws the handgun to the back of her head. And I love this little moment. Again, it says more about his character that it's like this could be the end and he would rather her take a quick death. Like he would rather kill her so that way Freddy doesn't kill her himself because he knows that it, it'll be worse for Tina if Freddy gets a hold of her. So I think that's a very effective little moment. Again, it just says so much about ernie as a character yeah so we go back to colonel glover he's woken up by a phone call and is informed about the situation that is happening so he gets up goes to the control panel gets everything ready talks to a few other more people in the government so they find a solution and burton is is still on the phone as all this is happening and he's i love i'm sorry to interrupt you in, in this i just i love the exchange he has with the the unnamed uh, person, possibly the president, I, I, I don't know who it was, but he says, sir, we found the lost consignment of Easter eggs. Uh, <laughs> yes, it would be good news, sir, except the eggs have hatched. 
love that. Love that metaphor, I've got to say. Yes. And uh, so, but as he's on the phone, they says, oh, don't worry. They said they have a contingency plan for a situation like this. So they just assume, oh, we're just going to get rescued. That's not just the case. So <laughs> the government decides to fire a missile at the area where the zombies and the mortuary and the cemetery are. And I love this visual because you hear the missile coming towards them. Bird is on the phone. He's like, what's that noise? And then we see the zombies looking up to the sky, including the zombie version of Trash. Basically, the whole place is blown up, the whole area. I don't know if it's like specifically that whole area or the whole town is, because we do see a model of the town. And 20 square like, blocks. Yeah, 20 square blocks. So the missile pretty much destroys that entire area. Everyone is dead. And I like the fact that in a lot of ways, though, this film does continue a lot of the elements that Night of the Living Dead did by giving us a bleak ending where pretty much all of our major characters die, but also having that kind of commentary on it as well. So basically, as this is happening, uh, Colonel Glover is talking to possibly the president or somebody else in the government saying like, yep, everything's been sorted out. This is never going to happen again. Some rain is coming in to wash everything all the way. But they, again, like you said, Steve, they don't realize that due to the ashes from the yellow cadaver zombie we saw earlier being up in the air, anytime it rains, it's going to go down to the ground and resurrect the dead again. And we see that happening as cemetery, which I love the fact that they just reused the cemetery footage from yeah. <laughs> earlier in the film. <laughs> and also that skeletal zombie just pops up out of the ground again. And that's when the movie ends. And we also just get a bit of a little highlight reel of some of the best moments from the film in the credits. So, uh, John, your thoughts on the final act of this film? Well, first, it is political commentary, but it's also Dan O'Bannon's sense of humor. Yes. Because this is why the movie ends on the 4th of July. Because he wanted it to end with a fireworks display. That is very true. <laughs> uh, but no, this is, I mean, you know, it's its the perfect ending for this movie. Like you said, it needed to go full bleak. It needed to go full dark, no stars. Everybody has to die. It's, it is the only possible ending to this acceleration. Sooner or later, you just have to hit the brick wall. And it it is a perfect ending. The only thing I would have changed is the reused footage but apparently that was a last second thing he yep. wanted to end it with footage of like historical atrocities you know old newsreel footage as as the the visual to that voiceover but the studio said no that's that's too bleak too dark interestingly the first time i saw this when i was 10 i was already hiding in my sleeping bag by that point in the movie <laughs> so in my head while this guy while colonel glover is talking I am picturing him sitting at that computer and behind him in the windows, zombies are slowly gathering around his building. And that is the ending in my head for decades. And I think it is it would have been so good if they'd done that because, man, was that creeping me out as a kid. That's nice. That's cool. That's cool. And uh, Steve, your final thoughts, I mean, your thoughts on the finale of the film. Yeah, just um, uh, going back to what John said about the the commentary, shooting, showing um, historical atrocities would have 
would have been absolutely absolutely perfect uh, for that, and it makes sense because you've got on one hand you've got Colonel Glover saying, "Oh yeah, no, it's uh, everything's under control. It's not going to happen again." And this is showing us the the historical atrocities. Just shows how we're oblivious to how we're we're manufacturing our own destruction, uh, which is what's happening in the movie. But I also think, and and this just occurred to me as I'm saying this, that recycling that footage was also sort of one of those happy accidents, maybe, because mm. it is going to happen again and again and again. Mm. So showing us that footage, I don't know. I think maybe there's 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 a little bit of um uh, a little bit of poetry to that as well. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Hence, we got like uh, four sequels after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but none of them worth anything, as far as I I, I don't know. Maybe Brian Usner's, um, but again, that was less less in line with with this original mm. i think the second one took too much leaned too much into the comedy and and you know recycled a lot of the jokes recycled a lot of the, frank and freddie um were were grave robbers and and frank gets to say again watch your mouth boy if you like this job you know and that whole that whole sort of thing but i look with with this what i before we before i completely wrap up my final thoughts i do want to say that um the Chuck and Casey arc is yeah. another really beautiful moment in this in this film when they're at the when they're at the medical supply warehouse and they they can't you know he he's always, he's been trying to hit on her this whole movie and she's like will you just go away I don't like you that doesn't change she still doesn't like him she says to him at the very end Chuck I never liked you but oh God, please hold me tight. And I just think that's that was such a wonderful little scene for them. It's not the end of their story, but it's it's this great little moment of people knowing knowing they're completely fucked and just embracing the the moment, embracing the humanity and embracing each other in that. That I I don't know. That that sticks with me. That gets my heart a little a flutter. Um, I think whatever I whatever I see that. It's really good. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's just little character moments like that that kind of make this film as great and as memorable as it is and you don't and you expect can... that in movies uh, sorry you don't expect uh, that in movies like this oh yeah definitely and i think that's probably what makes this movie why this film has has had the legacy that it has like yeah it's a very funny film it's a very scary film and it has a punk rock feel that makes it stand out from other zombie films or any other horror films for that matter but i think at the end of the day what makes this film as good as it is it's the characters. And I think the characters are very memorable. The actors go all out with their performances. And you can tell that they're all very passionate about this film. And even watching the documentary, like everyone is so proud of this film. Even like actors you wouldn't expect, like you think, oh, Clue Gulliger and James Carrot, this would be like a paycheck kind of gig. But yeah. no, they both absolutely loved being a part of this film and especially James Carrot, he just because he loved loves this film and it's just amazing to me that again it was what makes this film such a great film it are the actors their performances but also the way how the characters are written because yes they are very over-the-top characters in a lot of ways but they feel very grounded and believable as well uh, for a lot of the same reasons, um, and I mentioned it at the top, Night of the Creeps. This and mm. Night of the Creeps are, like, you, you point to them, you go, that's how you do that. 
you know they're absolutely perfect and the same almost almost the same elements you get these great character elements in night of the creeps you get these people you care about you know just 80s everything 80s about it is is in there it's night of the creeps is less uh punk than this one it doesn't have the punk attitude it's an homage to the 50s B movies, like the Ed Wood mm. sort of things. And this one, although there weren't nearly as many zombie movies, this one almost feels as much an homage as a reinvention of the zombie genre. Oh, yeah, definitely. But uh, I guess that could be a wrap on our conversation. John has well, a. Yeah, oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. I wanted to mention, which is, you know, uh, before we wrap up, speaking of the actors, I just want to give a shout out to. Uh, Mark Venturini, who played Suicide, who died just far, far too young. Uh, he, I think he died in, in the early 90s. So, you know, he lived only about five to seven years after this, uh, some sort of a heart condition. And he was, uh, by all accounts, he was as charming as his characters were surly. He also gives a great performance in Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, as a similarly intense, violent individual, I think he is the only person who isn't the Jason figure in one of the Friday the 13th movies who kills somebody. He's great here as suicide. Every line he delivers is quotable and his dialogue is always the best or his his delivery is always the best thing about it. I just couldn't let the episode end without talking about how great he is as suicide. Absolutely. And thank and thank you for that. He has one of the he has one of the uh, memorable lines uh, when you know, uh, Trash is like rubbing her, her naked body up against him and he's oblivious. He's oblivious to this because nobody takes him seriously. And he says, you know, do you, you think this is this isn't a uniform? This is a way of life. <sighs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. He was great. But also, let's not forget, uh, he's not the only Friday the 13th actor in this movie. Uh, Miguel A. Nunez was also in Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning as well. And also, Tom Matthews will play Tommy Jarvis in Friday the 13th Part 6. Is this a segue feed? I think it might have to be before we go (laughs) into our final thoughts on this film. Uh, So, not only I can reveal what we're going to be talking about now, so... Not only is October going to be the month of Night of the Living Dead, because, of course, we're going to be doing every two weeks will be an episode on the Return of the Living Dead series. And, of course, in between will be bonus episodes discussing the the indie remakes of Night of the Living Dead with the filmmakers behind them. However, and I can indulge this right now, we're going to be having a spinoff show. This is an exclusive, everyone. <laughs> to Bead vs. the Living Dead. And Steve, you're going to be my co-host on it. And we could reveal right now our little spin-off show is going to be called Bead and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. Steve and I are going to be doing a podcast once a month where we're going to go through the entire Friday the 13th series. However, every third episode, we're going to be talking about something else outside of the Friday the 13th films. So we're going to be discussing fan films. We're going to be discussing comics. We're also going to be discussing in like international ripoff versions <laughs> of Friday the 13th. And I'm very excited about this because we're going to, because let's just say Friday the 13th as a franchise is, has probably the most fan films of any horror franchise <laughs> out there. 
And some of them I have seen, and they've been pretty good, and I look forward to doing episodes on them as well. But the thing is, Steve, we have an interesting way how we're going to release the show each month. Since it is going to be a once a month show, we're going to release it on a very specific date. We're going to release every episode on the 13th of each month, and hence why this show is going to be released in October, because... This October, we have a Friday the 13th. So that is when the first episode of Beat and Steve vs. Camp Crystal Lake will be dropping on all podcast streaming services everywhere. And I haven't decided whether it will have its own podcast stream or if it will just be an added show onto the Beat vs. the Living Dead uh, slot. But I will work it out. And, but it will be out there so you can all listen to it. Steve, you and I are very excited to talk about this because... We only decided coming up with this idea maybe a couple of months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at, do you remember? Yes. At uh, the screening of Night of the Living Dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> who would have thought that a podcast on Friday the 13th, George A. Romero, even from beyond the grave, George A. Romero is still giving <laughs> me ideas to do for this show. <laughs> but uh, yes, so that first episode of Beat and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake will be dropping on Friday the 13th this October. I'm excited for that first episode and stay tuned for that once it drops. Now, <laughs> with that segue and announcement out of the way, we'll go to our final thoughts on uh, Return of the Living Dead. And uh, John, your final thoughts on the film overall. I mean, I'm going to say it again. It's it's a perfect film. It's a great example of what you can do with a committed cast, a production team that is just really filling in all of those little details on sets, props, costumes, the whole nine yards. Great concept, great writer, great dialogue, wonderful direction. The soundtrack is absolutely needle drop after needle drop after great needle drop. There's just very little I would change about it, and it, it was it was the horror movie that defined my childhood, and I, I really don't think anything else has ever made me as scared as when I was watching this movie at age 10. And uh, Steve, your final thoughts on Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to sound like a broken record. Uh <laughs> Uh, or or possibly a cover band but it it defined it defined me absolutely um seeing it at 15 i am in fact more familiar with the hemdale release the vhs release with the altered uh soundtrack and the altered uh voice uh, voice augmentation of of tarman and things like that so that's a holy grail for me i'm writing about Return of the Living Dead right now for my column on um, forcesofgeek.com. So that's going to be upcoming in in the next couple of months. But I do talk about the soundtrack, this incredible punk rock soundtrack. Uh, I just think when people talk about horror comedy, this is the one, you know, people... I get into arguments about this all the time because I'm just very opinionated. But like when people mention Reanimator is a horror comedy, I'm like, no, 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 no. Reanimator is a horror movie that relies on comic relief. There's there's comic relief tension. Uh, uh, there's tension. Sorry. There's comedy there to release the the tension of the horror. Return of the Living Dead is a horror comedy. It puts comedy sometimes before the horror and it's it's finds that finds that balance 
it's so perfect. It really is a it really is a perfect film. Yeah, and I think uh, what you were saying just now, Steve, about horror comedy, comedy horror, I feel like they are very distinct in terms of what they mean. Like the Return of the Living Dead is definitely a horror comedy. Like there is definitely a a lot of humor throughout, but it doesn't forget the fact that it wants to scare you Mm -hmm. as well. Like an American Werewolf in London, also a horror comedy. Uh, But in terms of comedy horror, I would think of something like... Well, I would say Gremlins is a horror comedy, but Gremlins 2 is a comedy horror. (laughs) 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 Or if we're going to do it by Return of the Living Dead standards, the first film, horror comedy. The second film, comedy horror. Yeah. Third film, definitely all out horror. All Um, out horror. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it forgot its roots. It forgot the face of its father. I am, yeah, I am. I'm I'm eternally amazed by this movie. Every time I watch it, um, I just have such a great time. Such a great time with this one. Indeed. And uh, my final thoughts on the film, I think The Return of the Living Dead is a great film. It doesn't surprise me at all that it now has the reputation of a cult classic. But I think a lot of people think, oh, this film's a cult classic. It must not have done well at the time. Surprisingly, it did. It actually did very well at the box office. Like, it actually made its entire budget back. It actually was a moderate success. So, but it's one of those films that is so beloved by so many of us horror fans that it has now just been fully embraced in, wow, it's actually now in two years' time, it's it's going to be uh, 40 years old, like in two years' time. So, and there's a good reason for that because Dan O'Bannon and the cast and crew, like I know it was a tough shoot from based on the documentary uh, More Braids, which I definitely highly highly recommend everyone to check out because it's such a great doco but they created something that is so memorable and it has a good balance of horror comedy has memorable characters has that punk rock feel that makes it stand out compared to other horror films at the time and i will admit like the first time i watched it i was a little bummed out by the bleak ending but now (laughs) like the original night of the living dead i've embraced that ending and i feel like in a lot of ways Night of the Living Dead and this film are kind of like the yin and yang in terms, like they hit some of the same beats, but they have their own different approaches. So that is why I'm doing Return of the Living Dead on the show, because it pretty much started off as an offshoot, as a sequel to Night of the Living Dead in book form, then it became its own thing in film form. But it's still a great film that I definitely highly recommend everyone to check out if they haven't seen it. It is a fun, scary just memorable film with great dialogue, memorable sequences, great zombie effects, and it's just a great time overall. And it's a great party horror film. Like, get your friends together, grab a couple of drinks, get some popcorn, sit back, relax, and you'll have a great (laughs) time with this film. So, yeah, that is, I guess that could be a wrap on our conversation of the return of the living dead and thank you both Stephen and john for coming back on the show and talking this film with me thank you b thank you for having me definitely definitely and uh before we wrap up the show tonight uh john where can people find you on the internet this week but also where can people listen to your podcast half price horror well my podcast can be found on spotify on apple podcasts on iHeartRadio, pretty much Anywhere you would find a podcast, you can find my podcast. It's got an RSS feed. It is called Half Price Horror. It is me 
picking up horror movies from the discount rack and going through them, doing a deep dive, talking themes, talking production details, giving as much information as I can about it, usually going scene by scene. Uh, I am just wrapping up a Summer of Sam, which is a three or four month long tribute to Sam Raimi. And then I'm going to get into spooky season with uh, Godzilla, the new Evil Dead movie and Scream 6. Nice. And I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky as, uh, well, I'm on Twitter as Half Horror. I'm on Blue Sky, Tumblr, Letterboxd, all as Half Price Horror. And uh, Steve, where can people find you on the internet this week? But also, do you have any productions from your theater company, the the Knack Theater, coming up as well? Uh, yeah, both actually. I have a new I have a new column on on forcesofgeek.com called Creep Shows and Fright Nights: A Look Back at 80s Horror. I'm very proud of this. Um, nice. I just got my first uh, uh, the first column went up uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It's on H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable. Ooh. Which, yeah. Mm. And an overlooked gem, I think. It's a fantastic movie. And I've got one coming up on Christine, another one on The Hitcher. Uh, so, yeah, forcesofgeek.com. You can check that out. And, yeah, as far as the Knack Theater, we just wrapped up a show called um, Ohio by um, a playwright named Monica Byrne, who is, um, she's a sci-fi author. She's got uh, two novels out there and uh, several plays. We had the world premiere when Roe Ro v. Wade was um, repealed there last um, last year, a couple years ago. Monica put up a post, said, hey guys, I have plays about fascism and abortion, if anybody's interested. And of course my hand went right up. We grabbed Ohio and, um, that was that was what we did. We are taking a break for the rest of the year because we have been busy little bees this this whole year uh, for four productions and several table reads. But we've got some we've got some good stuff coming up in in 2024. Nice. Nice. And uh, if people want to find me personally, you can find me at my Twitter page. And I refuse to call it X at <laughs> Twitter.com slash And also you can find me at Letterboxd at Letterboxd.com slash And also you can find me at Blue Sky at Blue Sky. Oh, well, I'm not exactly sure that just you can find Beijermine on Blue Sky. Because <laughs> that's a weird, weird thing that you can you have to type in. So I just look up the name Beijermine and I'm on there. But for the podcast itself, Bean vs. the Living Dead, you can listen to the show on all podcast streaming services everywhere. Please leave a rating, the review, if you have been enjoying the show. And if you have a review of the show, let me know and I will make sure to read it on the sh- on a few on a future episode. And also you can follow the official Twitter page for this podcast at twitter.com slash bead VSTLD. And also you can find Bead vs. the Living Dead on Facebook and Blue Sky as well. So, yeah, so that is the end for this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. We hope you all really enjoyed it. Now, the next episode, now, episode 23, which will be on Return of the Living Dead Part 2, that episode will be dropping on October 15th. However, on October 8th will be the first of my special bonus episodes, which I'll be talking to filmmakers behind some of the indie remakes and reimaginings of Night of the Living Dead. And on October 13th will, of course, be the debut episode of mine and Steve's podcast, Bede and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. And I'm very excited for 
a lot, couple of, I'm working on a few other things as well. So stay tuned for what those are, but also keep a lookout for all those shows over the next month and other cool bonuses as well. So yeah, that is the end for this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. I hope you all enjoyed it and I'll see you all next time, everyone. See everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.